Vicky Quaddy is best known for late night catechism and she's doing more theater, writing, and she talks about her journalism career. This is from a live stream that we did. What's your Chicago background? Oh, I was, I was born here. I, I was born in the Chicago area. I was raised on the Southwest side. What is now called, uh, it's the Oak Lawn and, and Burbank area. So I was born in Burbank. I was born in Stickney Township, and now it's Burbank. Oh. Um, for a while, it was Oak Lawn, but it's definitely that Southwest side. Um, and in fact, you know that I'm from the South side because I don't pronounce the H in South. I, I don't say South side. Right. I'm from the South side. So you've been in Chicago. Have you lived in Chicago your entire life? Well, I've tried to um, go elsewhere. Like I lived in LaSalle, which is about, I don't know, but is it maybe 90 miles or so from here uh, or so? Um, I lived in LaSalle. I worked for the the, the News Tribune, uh, which is a wonderful little newspaper there. And um, after two and a half years, I moved up to Waukegan and I worked there for about four and a half years. Again, a fabulous newspaper, The New Sun. Uh, really happy to have had those experiences. I did I did interview. I interviewed in Toronto. I interviewed in Milwaukee. I, inter- I interviewed in Boston. I interviewed in San Francisco. And I always ended up uh, not getting the job, but uh, being told, you know, if you're, if, you know, just give it a couple more years. And I thought after a while, I don't want to leave Chicago. I, I, I like Chicago. So I got a job at the American Bar Association as an editor, as a writer first at the ABA Journal, and then as an editor. And I kept thinking, well, I'll work it for a year or two, you know, but I was there for 18 years. Wow. But again, those are the jobs where you make friends for life. And I don't, and it's interesting, and I don't know what, Margaret, what your feeling is about this, but I think people today move really quickly. They work for a place for a year, maybe two, maybe six months. And, and so they don't have lifelong friends from their work experiences. Um, I do. I have friends going back to those early days of LaSalle. What was it like to live in LaSalle? It's a small town. It's a small town. Uh, it was fine. I was 22. I turned 22 when I was in LaSalle. And I stayed there until I was, you know, just just before I hit 20. Um, well, before I hit 24. And you know what? As much as I loved the people that I worked with, LaSalle and, and towns like that are perfect if you're about 55 years old and you want that last 10 years of your work to be at a really good publication or a really good job. And you're going to work it for 10 years and then you're going to retire. But that was not what I wanted. And as wonderful as the job was and the people I need, I knew I needed to get out. Then and I ended up in Waukegan. <laughs> what was it like to work in newspapers back then? Oh, little did I know that I would be at the tail end of the history of daily newspapers and working in a newsroom and getting assignments and going out and doing investigative reporting, crime reporting, um, shootings and city council meetings. And I mean, all of that, that was done. Um, and I loved every second of that. I really did. And I would not have given that up for anything. But uh, as the more I moved around, I worked for Newsweek magazine as a, as a correspondent for about 12 years. I worked at the American Bar Association as an editor. It was always the craft of writing and editing and honing your writing um, and interviewing people and, and learning. 
You know, when, when you read other people's interviews and you think, oh, I should have asked that question, you learn, you ask it the next interview you do and you keep in, in, evolving your skills. But now, I mean, people have asked me, should I go into journalism? The number one answer is yes. We need journalists. We need people who will ferret out the truth and report that. The question is, where are you going to work? Well, yeah. does that newspaper still exist, the one in LaSalle? Those, the two papers still exist, but they're nowhere near the staff or the, or the, the ability that, that I had. You know, to be able to, to spend time working on an investigation, that doesn't exist any longer. Think of the last investigative journalism piece that you saw. Well, it's been a while. I mean, they're out there. I mean, there's so many outlets right now, but I, I can't even, I don't know. There are also books written. I mean, now people are writing books, so they might work in the media and then. No, yeah, no, that's right. But that daily journalism that, you know, what I think about is when young journalists uh, ask the question, what else should I be looking at? And their sources say, well, you want a good story. You should look at this. And that tends to be how things get reported. That that they they hear about it and they have the opportunity to to research that. But we were, oh my goodness, the staff that I the staffs that I was on, they we did a lot of different stuff. I just don't see that now. I just don't. Well, I always think about investigative journalism being spotlight. I mean, they totally blew the cover right. off the. So right, and they also there a movie came out. Everybody should see that spotlight. It's so. <laughs> thousand percent yes i saw it just recently i decided i had nothing to do one night which was really rare and i was clicking around and spotlight was on netflix or something and man is that a good movie and it tears at your heart because it's all about the pre-sexual abuse and it brings all of that back and at, the end they, I, and at the end they have um that list of all the places all, all the priests all the places that that um, the priests who sexually abused uh, were were discovered. What's interesting is my son and I went and saw that at a screening. I get invited to screenings because I do movie reviews every once in a while. Like today, I was actually on the Archdiocese radio station, and I I was reviewing some movies. Is that nine fifty um, or something? Yeah, it's that's relevant radio, but they oh. are uh, they're at seven twenty, I think. It's uh, it's Catholic Chicago, and they do a, a YouTube channel as well. But um, my son and I, my son Michael came with me to a screening. And when that movie ended, really, he turned to me and said, that's the best picture of the year. Oh, and yeah. I said, yeah, that, that's going to win. Oh, so you just, you just knew it. Yes. But I mean, when you back then, though, when you were working in journalism, did you have a feeling things were changing or not? No, no, not like when advertising started to change, you saw it. I, I worked for the reader for a lot. I, I did a lot of my articles were in the reader. The reader used to be four parts. It was a, it was the main first part. It was then the music and the and the listings. Then it was I don't know maybe sports or something like that. And then it was the fourth part was always the advertising, the 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 ads. But once Craigslist started, and you started to see that Craigslist free, well for the most part uh, was taking was biting into the, that ad revenue. You started to see newspapers shrinking. And when that happened, newspapers failed to do the smart thing. And that was to charge for their content. And instead, it took years. People were giving, you could just go on the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, New York, the Chicago Tribune, and you could get all that content for free. 
And it took a really long time, years for them to say, oh no, we're charging. We'll give you, we'll give you five articles for free. If you like it, you got to pay. By then the damage was done. Well, it's interesting because I interviewed somebody else and they said that they think it's a mistake to charge, but I think they should have. Cause I remember the beginning of the internet and I was wondering myself, like, wait a second, what are they doing? Yeah. Everything was free. And no, you have to charge a little something. Otherwise, how, how are they going to continue? They have to pay their people. Well, some people say, you know, it could be donation and so forth, sort of like PBS model, but <laughs> no. Not that you know that model works if you have sources from outside uh if you have any kind of outside funding a lot of the papers don't you know. so when but the internet you, yeah sorry go ahead no no i was gonna say they are for profit the newspapers are not not for profit unless you do the reader the reader is now not for profit you want to give money to the reader great you want to give money to the new york times yeah they're selling their content right and also once, if you have access to, if you, because I, I subscribe to the New York Times, you can go into their archives. It's really incredible. So you can do a search from like the 19th century, 1971, anytime. You can do a search for a word or a topic and all this stuff is going to come up. So it's like you have a library. It's really incredible. Right. Not the 19th century, the 20th century. Right. But no, but 19th century too. Didn't they, I think, didn't they start in the night? You can, you can go way back in the New York Times. It's really incredible. Oh, yeah, maybe the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. And also what's interesting about this book, um, Close Encounters of, the of a Chicago Kind, I say of the, but of a Chicago Kind, is that I cannot get over how curious you are about the world around you. Have you always been like that? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I was the family news source. Um, I had my little black transistor radio and I would listen to it. And I, would, I, was, I was always revealing news of the day. And uh, I've I always loved news and I've loved it. I've had a curiosity about people. And my mother used to tell me that I would talk to anybody to the point that sometimes she thought, I'm going to teach her a lesson. I'm going to walk away. And she would walk away. I just kept talking because I was comfortable with whoever I was talking to. I also have a knack of seeing something develop and thinking to myself, just stand here, just wait wait and see if this is going to be an interesting little moment. And a lot, and most of the times it is. And then I try to remember it and capture it really fast. It, then, it comes out in your book because, yeah, that's what's so interesting about your book because I've lived in the city for many years and I don't think I've noticed so much or I haven't gotten into conversations with so many people and you'll be in any kind of situation and there's always a story coming forth. It's often a story. No, it doesn't happen every time, but you have to be open to it. And when it happens, you have to say to yourself, this is a good story. This is an interesting person. This is an, this is an encounter that's worth capturing and remembering. And I might have an envelope in the car that I immediately go and start writing uh, little bits of information on that envelope. And then when I get home, I try to write it down right away. Well, did you know you wanted to make a book out of it? All of your no, 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 I just, I just like posting on Facebook. Part of it was just to get people to comment. So you say, how do you stay friends? A lot of what I like to do is to post something and then let people comment. Not, not all of my friends on Facebook are friends with each other, but it's interesting to see the variety of comments that I'll get on a particular post. And then I, I know that, people have have said, I like you, let's have coffee, 
you know, I thought I, I did, I, I know you through Vicki, but you know, maybe we could become friends. So I know that that has happened, which is cool. Now it's interesting because I know somebody also, she is from the city, from the Southwest side in the city. And then they, she moved to the suburbs when she was older. I mean, but like when she was way early, she older, she was married, she got married and she's sort of like you in that she always connects with people. And mm-hmm. now I'm wondering, is this a Southwest side thing or South side? But I just think it's like old school to be so connected to people, especially today, because it seems like people are in their own little slots. But what do you think about that? Well, don't forget the South side as, as much as it's home didn't offer a lot. Um, We lived in ranch style homes. We talked to our neighbors on our block. I delivered newspapers when I was like nine years old until I was about 14. I got to know the neighbors in my immediate area within a, I don't know, an eight block area, 10 block area. I knew the kids I went to school with. I knew their siblings, but if we wanted to do anything, we had to pretty much drive into the city. And so when you started uh, getting to talk to people and find them interesting, it was, it was a relief. Like, oh my goodness, there's other things going on in the world. You know, I grew up in a really lily white area. I did not see black people until I was, I was, I mean, I'm going to say, well, no, so, so I was actually like five or six years old because my father worked at East Texas Motor Freight Lines and he was their union. He was the the head of the union committee and all those guys loved my dad. And my dad would take me to East Texas Motor Freight Lines if he had a special project that came up. And uh, my dad had a mechanical mind. He, he was an amazing engineering mind. And there was a guy, a, a, a black man named Perry. And I loved Perry. I, I loved him because he talked to me and he, they put me on that, that flatbed and roll me around and, and just ask me about my life. You know, somebody pays attention to you. That person is really special because they're not just talking about themselves. They want to know what you are like. And I just loved Perry. And, you know, it is true. When you're young, color means nothing, means nothing. It wasn't until I started to get older and I heard these nasty comments people would make about people who are black. And I thought, well, Perry's black and I love Perry. So how bad can he be? So it, it was a very eye-opening experience to me to see and learn racism. And, my, and again, I grew up in a really lily white neighborhood. And, uh, and then, I, then to start going into the, the, the core of the city, my, my aunts, two of my aunts lived at like near 47th and Ashland, which was a real Mexican American neighborhood at that time. And, uh, and then my, you know, then your, your life starts to expand. You're like Mexican, Mexican food. Oh my God, <laughs> this is Nirvana. And people became really interesting to me to watch people. Um, but that's, that's really, it was, it was getting into different neighborhoods and uh, and getting to know people uh, and and being and op- having a, an open mind really yeah but also it's also the technology that's changed because I was going to ask you what do you think what did you think when the internet came around because you know you were so connected to people and talking to people and meeting up with people etc and then the technology changed so what did you think do you remember when it was changing of course sure I wrote the show late night catechism by going to the library 
and, and going to uh, Rizzoli's and other bookstores and buying books and reading books and highlighting and researching. There was no Google. There was, there was no internet in 1993 when I was writing that show. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you had to go uh, to, to look up microfiche and microfilm uh, and, uh, and, and read, which was really interesting. When I did pieces for the reader, I did a lot of research like that. Um, so when, the, when, when Google came, I don't know if you remember this, Google was kind of silly. You know, people put silly things up there. And, I, and you could almost not believe what people were posting because there didn't seem to be anyone policing that information until Wikipedia, you know, came around. And then you're like, well, maybe these people at Wikipedia are actually doing some fact checking, you know, because I came from a fact checking background. Even what to this day, you can tell me something and I'll go, hmm, I got to look that up. Right. Well, that's also journalist because like yeah. that saying, you know, <laughs> if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Check it out. Right. <sighs> so, but um, in terms of uh, technology though, see what's very interesting about this book okay, that you wrote is that it's so much about human interaction and small human interaction. It's not like, oh, I went to this really cool event in Lincoln Park and I met these right, really right. cool people. No. It's like daily. And I really think that with technology, maybe that those kinds of things have changed. I mean, do you think it's more possible today to? Well, you just have to get out there. But yes, I, I know what you're saying. Uh, and I agree that if you just rely on staying home and going online, I mean, going online is fabulous. Oh my God, you can watch a clip from anything you want. You know, name some obscure show or movie or something, and you'll find a clip of it. And that's that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, you have not nourished yourself in any way. Um, you haven't met anybody. You haven't really talked to anybody. And so, uh, technology is great. It's great for it's great for research. You know, as long as you don't accept everything that you find. But in terms of actually meeting people, no, you have to get out there. You do. You know, and you have to keep your eyes open. That's the other thing. And not be afraid to talk to people. The other day, I saw this guy walking a dog and the dog was this little tiny dog, but he was really pulling this man. And I said, uh, oh, I see you get your guard dog with you as a joke, you know. And the guy looked at me like, <laughs> and I thought, oh no. And man, he has not talked to somebody in a long time. Yeah, where other people might stop and, and say, oh, yeah, you know, I take this dog out. And then, then you start a conversation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I and, and because I start conversations, I tend to know a lot of people. And, it, and I know a lot because I read a lot. So I can have a conversation with almost anybody. And then um, about your Bob Collins book, how did yes. you come to write that? Well, my friend Adrian Drell, who was working at the, at the Sun-Times at the time, uh, contacted me about helping, uh, about uh, being a part and helping her find authors for their 20th century collection. So I took uh, the year 1953, which was the year that the polio vaccine um, was discovered, and, uh, and, and Playboy and some other things happened in 1953. And, um, and I put her in touch with a whole bunch of other people. And so I was pretty actively involved in, in that book. Uh, she's definitely a thousand percent the editor, the creator, everything. I was just helping her a little bit, and uh, but I got to know the, the the publisher and the representative from the pub from the publisher house, 
And uh, one day he just approached me, he called me and said, would you, I mean, I like you. I like how you think. I like how you write. Would you like to do this book on Bob Collins? And I thought in a heartbeat. Wow. Yeah. Did yeah. you know him? Did you know him? I, I knew him only in that I would see him at different functions, events, and uh, and I liked him a lot. He was always, um, all again, a people person, you know, somebody you could really identify with. But when I got that assignment, I thought he was such a people person. The way to tell that story was through the people, the people who came into touch in, in, in touch with him. And so I I, uh, I went to his to his childhood and. I, I went, I drove up to Milwaukee several times and interviewed the guys that he worked with up there and in Chicago. And I found viewers. I went, I went on different sites where people had made comments about, oh, I really miss, you know, Bobby. And then I would just contact them. I, I'd hunt them down and call and say, hi, I'm doing a book. Would you like to talk to me? And I, it just, I put together about a hundred different interviews. And I, and I thought that was a good way of telling his story because he had, he had such an impact on people. Yeah. So what do you think made him so special? You said he was interested in people. Well, first of all, he had a great voice. He had a great morning radio voice. He wasn't shrill. Um, he was very comforting. He was funny. He was never uh, sarcastic. Um, you always got the sense um, like you were like he was your neighbor and you literally were having a cup of coffee with him. Uh, and I think people appreciated that. He had a great sense of humor. And it, it was very easy to get people to talk about him. He was very well loved. And so basically, did you intend for the book to be more of like a oral history kind of thing or? Yeah, that's how I, that's how I envisioned it. They, they let me decide how to tell that story. And I could have just written it like a straight biography, but I thought it was more interesting to do it as an oral history. Let other people tell the story of Bob Collins. And have you ever met Studs Terkel? Oh yeah, Studs was a friend of mine. Okay, yeah. so yeah, because what you're doing reminds me of Studs Terkel. So what did he help inspire you or? Oh, I've loved Studs writing for a long time. And then when I got a chance to meet him, which was a long time ago, probably 30 years ago. Yeah, he's just marvelous. Studs is marvelous. People I know who work in radio told me uh, a great story. So he was on a, a radio show and, he, and they had they'd given him a half an hour, 30 minutes. And he started talking, they're interviewing him. He started talking and then he wandered around. Oh, his mind went over to this tangent and then he went over to this tangent and they were thinking, oh my God, how are we going to end this? How are we? And all of a sudden studs brought it all back around wow. and it was like 29 minutes and 30 seconds. Whoop. And they said it was, it was watching the most brilliant master. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's right. That's what Studs was. He was a great, he was a great interview, intensely curious about people. Yeah, I, I really like Studs. I thought he was great. Yeah, because you remind me of the kinds of things that he did. He was into talking just to regular people and so forth. Yeah, look at working. Look at one of his first books. It was all stories about people. Uh, and, and yes, he, you know, letting people tell their stories. I know that when my father died, which was in 1992, I was pregnant with my daughter and she was born two weeks after he died. And, uh, I, uh, and Studs was working on that book about, about death. And uh, he asked me about my father's death. And uh, we talked at length about that. And he said to me, I'm going to call you. I'm going to interview you for the book. 
And I said, okay, that, that'd be great. He never did. He interviewed all sorts of other people. And then he ran into me one time and he went, well, I never interviewed you. <laughs> I said, it's okay. You had a lot of material studs. A lot. And I'm sure there's a lot of material he didn't even include. Right. Exactly. So how did you start writing um, late night catechism? And by the way, I walked in front of, I walked down uh, Lincoln um, two days ago and I saw that you're working on something else in that theater. Right. Exactly. I have a new show there called, are you smarter than your eighth grade nun? And it is a game show because during the pandemic, I mean, we were desperately trying anything to get outside, right? You know, and uh, I wasn't going shopping. I didn't go shopping for a year. I did all my shopping on Instacart. I didn't, nobody went. We didn't go to a restaurant. You didn't go out, nothing. People were dying. Friends of mine were dying of COVID. Uh, and so I, I ended up uh, watching TV and I would watch that stupid, that stupid game show network, which I kind of fell in love with. Because it brings you all back to, oh my God, there's a look at the, don't look at the game, look at the clothing. Yeah. Look at what the women are wearing. Look at the Nehru jackets. Look at the big ties or the skinny ties or whatever. And uh, it, I just started to fall in love with it all over again. And then it, it hit me. I thought, a well, game show. Hmm. I could, I could create a game show. Game shows are not that hard. And I thought, I, I, I would love to do your eighth grade nun. Are you smarter than your eighth grade nun? And uh, it just clicked. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis is at jeffdavis.com. And Vicki and I are planning to do a book event about her book, Close Encounters of a Chicago Kind, and my book, Wicker Park Wishes. And I'll share the details about the event when I get them. I asked you a question about late night catechism, then we got off on a tangent, sort of, that was a worthwhile tangent, but why did you start writing it? And I oh. know it's blockbusters. You even said in your book, you said that this guy, you encountered this guy who said, oh yeah, everybody knows about it. This guy was a tourist. Yeah. That guy, he was great. Um, yes. The man who came to see the show at the, at the great, at the Royal George. And I asked him why he came and he said, everyone knows about, you know, when you come to Chicago, you see late night catechism. And I thought that was just great. And I never told him who I was. How did I come to write it? Um, at the time, I was friends with a, a, a contractor, a woman named Mary Pat Donovan. She was a, she did, you know, you'd hire her if you wanted your bathroom painted or something. And she was an actress in town. And she was a good actress. And uh, she had uh, an idea <clears throat> to do a stand-up comedy routine on the lives of the saints. And she approached me to help her put together stories about the saints. But I found this really not interesting. I mean, just to do a stand-up routine. I mean, but we started talking more and more and more about our Catholic upbringing. And it became really obvious to me that that was the story. Ooh. It was connecting people mm. to their Catholic upbringing. And of course, Chicago is perfect for it. Perfect. And one women shows, one person shows were very, very uh, popular in Chicago, and in, I think in the country, but clearly in Chicago, in those early 1990 uh, years. So this was 1993. And wait, sorry I, to interrupt, but sorry to interrupt, but why were those woman win shows more popular in the early 90s? Oh, well, I think there were a lot of them. Uh, there were more theater spaces. There were more little basement re, uh, uh, spaces that had you could fit like 40 people. 
those those spots are gone. A lot of the buildings were sold, torn down, and and brick three flats were put up. Yeah. Uh, lots of performance spaces are not there any longer. But that's not what it was like then. Um, also, we call them the good Clinton years. That's when people had money, and um, so people went out. They enjoyed it. We were part of that storefront theater movement. It was an affordable ticket. It was a good show. It was funny. It was smart. Uh, we got great reviews. And it just kept going. It just continued. And by word of mouth, it just it just kept kept its pace. So it was my idea to turn this into a, um, a show where there was a nun teaching a catechism class. Because I always thought that was that's what people would connect to. And, and I was right. So you thought, how do you make a hit? I mean, I'm not, this is not like a huge Broadway hit, but you know, to me, it's a hit. Okay. So the fact that it's lasted so long, how do you well, do it? Well, we ran seven years off Broadway. So we started, uh, we started uh, off Broadway in 80, uh, um, 96, sorry. Cause we're in Boston in 95. We went to New York in 96 and it ran for seven years. And again, it it was uh, it, it it hit on the tourist level, um, so people coming in would would want to see the show. It appeals beyond the the Catholic audience. So, like we like to say, just like you don't have to be Jewish to like Fiddler on the Roof, you don't have to be Catholic to like Late Night Catechism. It was an inexpensive show to produce. It was a one character show. For a while, we had a secondary priest character, but once we got the reviews in New York, we realized we really didn't need that secondary character. So we, we cut that uh, and just brought it down to just the one person on stage. It also has a Chicago improv background. Um, so everybody who's in that show has to have really good improv skills and, uh, and a knowledge of Catholicism. So all of that, when you look at all of that, all the cities that we were big in, we were, I don't know, we were like 11 years in Seattle. It was a crazy long time in Seattle. We were in Los Angeles, New Orleans. These are big runs. Boston, we went back to Boston. We went to London. We went to Dublin. We went to Australia. We were in Malaysia. I mean, really big, big, long runs. You will not find that now. Number one, the theater spaces are, are not as plentiful. People don't have the money they used to. You can stay home now. You can watch Netflix. You can watch Amazon. You can watch Hulu. You can stream as much as you possibly want. You can watch YouTube and you don't have to go out and see a, a show. You're afraid of COVID. Uh, I don't, I don't want to catch COVID again. And so you will feel more comfortable streaming something um, or reading a book, uh, which is great. But uh, those days of just people looking for something to do, they're, they're, that's gone. Wow. So it was gone before COVID. Oh, yeah. And when you, you were talking about, you know, how times change, when did that change when people stopped wanting to go out to all these places? Well, once there was more available, you know, on, on TV. So what year was that? I don't know, 10 years ago or something right. like that. You know, once you, once you started getting Netflix and people could order movies, first it was movies that they got in the mail. Uh, and then it was just streaming online. Once you could do all of that, you didn't have to go out. You didn't have to go to the theater. But there, but live theater is so different. I mean, because the, the people who are performing, even a live speaker, if you go to something live, they're responding to the audience. Right. But it is the economy. It is the fact that, you know, look at 
look at 2000. Well, it's really after 9-11. You can count everything after 9-11. 9-11 happened. The, the country started to shut down. By 2003, you saw a lot of people, a lot of industries affected, hospitality, restaurants. I mean, the Navy Pier was dead. I remember taking my daughter out to Navy Pier after school, and we would deliberately try to order just as much food as we could to take home. For, for a, at least a month after 9-11, I told my kids, I'm not cooking a single meal. We are ordering at restaurants just to support as many restaurants as we uh -huh. possibly can. But you saw the impact on the economy uh, starting in 2003. By 2007, oh my goodness, you know, the housing market was crashing. People were losing their jobs. People didn't have money to just go to theater, you know, buy a ticket, see a comedy. They were worried about being able to pay their mortgage. Well, yeah, because 2008, 2009, that really changed things. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, when did you quit your day jobs, so to speak? I mean, when you started writing Late Night Catechism, was that the first uh, production that you wrote? Oh, it's the first. Uh, well, no. I mean, I'd written other things, but that's the first production that was that was produced. I quit my day job in the year 2000. Uh, it was January of 2000 that I left the American Bar Association. And I formed a, a company that I then produced in uh, the Chicago area. And then we, Mary Pat and I uh, produced in Los Angeles as well. So we had the two cities going. And then ultimately uh, it, it was brought down and, and through a lot of different stuff, I ended up creating a different company and producing in Chicago. What was it like to leave that relatively secure situation and do your own thing? It was scary. It was really scary. And it was scary for stupid reasons. I thought to myself, well, right now, if I just want to FedEx something, I put it in a FedEx envelope and I, I give it to our, to our staff person and she sends it out. Can I do that myself? Yes, you can. You can just go to Kinko's and they will FedEx stuff out. Where do I buy insurance? You call an insurance agency and you'll be able to get insurance. Um, it's all the kind of stuff that, that frightens you. How am I going to make this work? And, uh, and you just take the leap. The other thing is, it's not prison. And I've always said this about everything. Everything in life. You buy a house. I hate this house. Not prison. Sell it. I, I just got a new job. I can't stand it. I made a tragic mistake. Guess what? Not prison. Quit. You can find something else. Um, you know, life, uh, uh, life is very free-flowing. And you don't have to stay with something if you really, really hate it. And, uh, and that goes with relationships too, you know, like you just, you have to do what works and what makes you happy and what works for you. And, and yes, I mean, of course I have three kids, you know, my life was built around them. And, uh, and so I couldn't be selfish about myself. I certainly had them to, to deal with, but I couldn't, I could make my life work. Yeah. But see, sometimes people think, okay, they hate their job, but then they can't quit because it's hard to find another job. So Is but you're. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's really the thinking about it and they can move or something. There's stuff you can do, Yeah, you know, or a lot of people have that one idea and they're afraid to create a company to make an idea work. And oftentimes you do have to, you have to see if it'll work. Like I, I have a friend who saved enough money. He worked really hard. He saved money for a year and he decided to become a writer. He was going to write that book. And he ended up writing, but he ended up getting married. And so his life changed, but he had a plan. 
he had a plan and then he had a fluid life. He thought, well, I'll finish that book later. But in the meantime, he at least took that leap and he was happier for it. So, I mean, I, and, and if you're miserable about taking that leap, you can always change it. So. Well, yeah, see, in my, I mean, reading your book and then reading about what everything you've done, you've done so much stuff, but you know, I, I get this impression that you are, you know, you're a risk taker and I'm just wondering, have you always been like that or? I think so. You know, I went to, I went to three different high schools. I was taught by, I was taught by Adrian Dominican nuns. I love those nuns. They were great. I loved those years in grade school. I went to uh, one high school as a freshman. It was a Catholic high school taught by Cincinnati Dominicans. I didn't like it that much. I mean, nothing wrong. I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't think I was getting a good education. So I switched over to Revis High School in Burbank. And I loved Revis. And that's when I got involved in theater. At Queen of Peace, I got involved in writing for the news, for the local, the, the school newspaper and things like that. But I knew that Revis was not for me. I didn't think anyone tracked much to college. And then I switched over to Jones Commercial. And those were decisions that I made that I wanted to do. I was 15 and I was planning out what my life was going to be. So yeah, uh, uh, am I a risk taker? Kind of. So, I think also doing creative things is very risky. A lot right. of people don't do it. Right, and surrounding yourself with creative people is wonderful. So I've had the luxury of being with really smart, talented, crazy, <laughs> diva-ish, <laughs> difficult sometimes people, but never boring never boring so if you're yeah. around boring people that is your fault yeah i mean so, some people just don't it doesn't even occur to them what boring is because they just like status quo or they just like the simple life or whatever it is but yeah, that's right they want to live in the suburbs and raise their kids and get their paycheck and have their health cover, health insurance covered i get that there's nothing wrong with that there there's a safety net and there's a feeling of being able to pay your bills i mean i totally get that but I also get the fact that sometimes you want to break out and you just want to do something that, yeah, it's a little scary, but in the end, you might really like what you're doing. Yeah. And how do you deal with the difficult people that you alluded to? Bite my tongue. I bite my tongue a lot. I think to myself, that person's having a really miserable life, or there's a reason that person's really horrible. And it's not like I tried to understand why they're horrible. They're just horrible. I just don't think I need to engage them because they're not going to change. And you know this, you've dealt with people. People don't change, not really. You know, they, they, they've gotten to where they are for a reason. So I just like, fine, all right, be that way. I'll be over here. <laughs> I'm going to go sit down and have a cup of coffee over here and uh, I just let them happen. Yeah. Another thing is, you know, about taking risks. Another thing that strikes me is that you seem very successful. I mean, of course, I'm not talking about living in a mansion in LA or whatever. You know what I mean? Because some people think of successful as like driving a Tesla, having the mansion, blah, blah, blah. But do you feel like you're successful or what do you think success is? I've had some really great successes. Yeah. I think late night catechism is a pretty great success. I think my, a lot of my other writing is pretty good. I was lucky enough uh, to meet somebody I was with for 10 years. We had three amazing children. That's a big success. Yeah, I was able to buy a place that I could afford. I live in a great city. I had COVID and got over it in five days. You know, I've traveled around the world. 
you know, I, 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 uh, I'm very lucky in many regards. I, I, I don't take that for granted. And then how did you, when you did have experience failures, how did you deal with it? Oh, or any advice, like any advice for that kind of thing? No, no, no. I've had failures. I've had shows that didn't work out. My marriage didn't work out. A lot of my, my business uh, relationships didn't work out. I think you have to take what you can out of those uh, situations and those relationships and work with what works for you. And then just realize that a lot of times, I mean, yeah, the, the bad stuff is there and you're not, it's just going to be there, but you, you have to, you have to keep walking forward. You really do. And I know that's hard and that seems simplistic, but I think that's the thing is you just have to think that you cannot stand still and wallow. You have to move forward. You have to find a way of moving forward. You know, and what kind of advice do you have for people? You mentioned journalism. What kind of advice for people do you have who want to go into journalism and theater with the situation? Oh, well, very different. Two different fields. Journalism, I mean, there are sites. I mean, there, there, people are hiring. Uh, and journalism, I think, has ticked up uh, ever since the, uh, the orange one has left office. And people realized the amount of lies that they were told. And I think the feeling is that uh, the journalists are to be trusted again. So I think there are, 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 there are outlets to, uh, to look at uh, for jobs. And theater, you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of companies. Uh, a lot of people still work, they work their full-time jobs and they, they do theater at night or on the weekends. And sometimes you just have to do that if you really love theater until you get to a point that you can say to yourself, you know, this is more successful or I've created a company or I've got a grant. We were able to get some grant money and uh, we can do something next year that's gonna be really interesting. And you sort of evolve that theater experience. It's hard and it's, it's something, if you really love it, uh, it, both of those professions, I think you really do owe it to yourself to try to make it work. I mean, I love writing, but I have been writing since I was a small child. There was never a thought that I would do anything else with my life. Yeah, some people some people love writing, but they're not really motivated to write because they feel like, what's the point? This, nobody's ever going to see this. And, and and maybe that's true. And so maybe they become great teachers or really productive nurses or something. They find something else in their lives that is productive, but maybe that doesn't stop them from doing some kind of writing. Not everybody has to uh, be a novelist and and you know be John Grisham and making movies left and right. But writing is wonderful uh, just to be able to share your thoughts and share them with someone else and, and get other people involved in your life. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that you were in journalism and you were sort of at the last days of mm. what it used to be. And then also with theater, because you were saying there are all these independent theaters happening. So it seems like and, there are two things. yeah. And the sisterhood. Little did I know. When I, when I was taught by nuns, nuns were in big demand. I mean, that's, that is the truth. The uh, orders were huge. Um, schools were, Catholic schools were enormous. It was the baby boom. And that, little did I know that I would be watching the dwindling years of that sisterhood. And, and it is dwindling. 50 years from now, how many nuns are going to be left? Not many. Why is it dwindling? Nobody's going into no, being a nun. It used to be that, you know, here you were, you were a Wisconsin farm family at 10 kids. Three of those girls might, might enter the sisterhood because they would be educated. 
nuns are smart and they're by and large they the one the ones that i have known over the last 30 years um and more because i knew nuns when i was a kid i really liked i thought they were really smart really funny they supported women uh, at a time when it was hard for women to see a life in corporate in the corporate world or to see a successful life women were telling girls you can do this you know women were touting that you had a brain you don't have to become a nun you just have to be your best self uh, and i heard that from those nuns um, and i think a lot of women did and i think that's why people why women not so much the boys i think the boys got beaten because they deserved it <laughs> but i think the girls uh, speak more kindly of the nuns because the nuns supported them i i had no idea that it was like that because you hear about these uh, caricatures or you hear about certain, not just characters, you hear about certain stories where the nuns beat you or they're very strict or it's not fun. They could be. Yeah. They could be. They, I, I got whacked with a, with a nun's hand, the back of her hand. That happened. I don't think you can deny it. I don't think the nuns can deny it, but it wasn't every nun. But the ruler became the big symbol. And we certainly use it. We use it for comic relief. When you pick that ruler up, oh, you can just see the audience like, there's the ruler. But I, I, I've talked to a lot of nuns who have said, oh, that ruler bit. I say, well, but you used it. You did whack students with the ruler. And that's why people remember it. And then when you, when you were growing up, though, what was the situation for women? Well, my mother worked. My mother was a, a nurse when I was really little. Um, she worked at the Little Company Mary Hospital. She was a baby nurse. She worked there for a long time, and then she oddly switched and became a sheriff's deputy. Wow. Uh, we, we were like, really? There was a job posting. It was good money. My mother thought, hmm, I could do this. She, she had never fired a gun in her life, and uh, it was no surprise to us when she came home and said she aced that, <laughs> that, fight, that gun test. Yeah, no kidding. But as a baby nurse, what's interesting is she used to sterilize her hands all the time. And when she did that, she literally altered the shape of her fingerprints. So when they did her fingerprints, they could they looked like the prints of somebody who was you know 80 years old. And so they had to keep redoing her prints. But she finally said to them, why are you doing this? And uh, she came home and said, guess what? You know, I, I altered my, my prints. And she was a sheriff's deputy for a while. Where? Uh, in, in Cook County, at the, at, you know, down at the jail and in the, in the court system. She was a bailiff. And my mother loves, uh, loved, my mother has died. My mother loved true crime. And she, she was a natural born journalist. When anything was happening in Chicago, my mother would say, get in the car. And we would drive over to witness something, whether it be McCormick Place, the old McCormick Place that was on fire. You know, my mother immediately drove over there so we could see the fire. When the Oakland tornado hit, my mother and I were out on the back porch with my father screaming at us to get inside. She just had a real natural curiosity about life. And, I, and that really definitely, and, and loved to read. She bought books, tons of books. There's always going to the store and buying books and having books around. Uh, and travel. My mother loved to travel. So we traveled in the U.S. She loved music. So we had music in the house. We would go and see uh, performances. I remember seeing Yul Brynner and The King and I. And so, you know, all of that has an impact, all of that, you know, I, I picked up on a lot of that and just absorbed all of that. But yeah, so after that, she went into being a, 
secretary for the state of Illinois. And, and then she went back to being a nurse. And when she died, um, she was still a, like a, a private a private duty nurse. So she went right back to it. And was that typical or what did her friends do? Did they work? Well, yeah, because she surrounded herself with women she met at work. And my aunts worked. Um, I had three aunts on my mom's side, two aunts on my mom. They were the three, the three girls and they all worked. So I was always surrounded by women personally who worked. I didn't know anyone who was divorced. I just didn't. Well, divorce was not as common back then. Well, but it was. When you talk to people and you say, and you find out that they were divorced, their parents were divorced, a lot of people didn't talk about it. But now, if you say to somebody, where did you grow up? And they say, well, I grew up in Oklahoma, and then I spent my summers in here. Like, why did you do that? Well, my parents were divorced. Really? Like, hmm. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about um, in the past when people didn't really discuss things openly like abuse and so forth and now, or even mental health issues and now they discuss it more. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's good that people discuss it. I think that, yeah, people were way more private. You talk about social media, everyone's life is out there. If you're on social media, people tend to know what you're doing. No, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to discuss all that. Why not? Okay. Some people, some people think it's better not to discuss. Um, I mean, I didn't grow up like that. I did not grow up in like a closed situation, but some people who are older, they'll say they don't like how everybody's so open about everything because then it seems like society is so dysfunctional because the, you know, some people will say, Oh, society was more orderly or something, but it but wasn't, my, was it? It was just hidden. That's what my dad said. My dad, I always asked my dad, he was much older. He was born in the mid twenties. I always asked him about that. And he said, yeah. you know, it was here. I asked my mother about pot uh, when I was a teenager because my mother grew up in Chicago and she said, oh, there was pot in high school. She went to school with Geraldine Page, the actress. Uh, Russ Ewing, who was the Chicago reporter, was in her class. And uh, it was a very eclectic, very mixed uh, group of students. She went to Englewood High and she said, oh, yeah, we, we called it uh, we called it Mary Jane. <laughs> and um, and I was like, oh, interesting. Uh, and she said it was there. Everyone knew it. So that whole idea of, oh, the, 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 the you know, pot was really popular in the 60s. Yeah, it was, but it was also popular in the 40s. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.